So today we're going to be looking at a story in Mark's gospel. Um, it's going to be in Mark 14, so you can head there. But um, before we do, just a couple of little thoughts about um, Mark generally. Um, so uh, th- there's four gospels, there's four different accounts of um, Jesus' life, and there's lots of similarities between them, also lots of differences. And um, they also have their own kind of unique um, takes on, um, on expressing the story of Jesus. And um, one of the ways that Mark has been described in the past is as the documentary gospel. Um, and what it means by that is it, it's pretty much straight down the line. It is, it's a documentary of Jesus. It's just showing you who he is, what he was about. And um, we even see that right from the very first verse of the gospel. It just says, this is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right from the outset, Mark's saying, everything you're about to read, it's all about introducing you to this guy, Jesus, who's the Messiah and is the Son of God. Um, And then the first words that Mark has Jesus saying, so the first time we hear Jesus speak in Mark's gospel, is just a few verses down, verse 15. Um, And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, um, Everything else in the gospel, I think we need to view back through this lens. Firstly, it's introducing us to Jesus. It's showing us why he is the Messiah. And that's what the word Christ means. It means Messiah. It's not his surname. And why is the son of God? And secondly, we're seeing taught and modeled and described and displayed what it looks like that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand And it's interesting that Jesus tells us because of this, because it's here, we're to do two things. We're to repent, which means literally we are going in one direction. We're going to turn around, change our minds and go the other way. So there's basically a big shift coming and that's going to look like behavior. It's going to look like um, practices and values. It's going to look like what we understand about God and the world, everything. And he also says, um, believe in the good news, believe in the gospel, now, gospel is one of those words, if you've been kicking around church for a while, it's a, bit of a, um, it's a bit of a freebie. If you say gospel with anything, it makes it great. We're just doing this gospel thing, and it, um, because we just understand gospel as this concept of, that's a great thing. Um, I wonder what we actually think we mean when we say gospel. Um, is it just, I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Because quite often, the way we talk about it, that's, we, we focused on that, on that personal, um, I said yes to Jesus, and now I'm going to be sorted in the afterlife. Now, that is amazing. And that is a one, the wonderful message of Christianity, that we will spend eternity with Jesus. But the gospel is so much more than that as well. So much more. Actually, there's a whole entire life in the kingdom for you to experience now, right now. Like actually, um, the game has completely changed and it doesn't wait until after you die. It's right now. But also, it's about more than just you. Um, if, if the fact that the kingdom of um, God is at hand means that um, we're to believe in the gospel, for me that shows that actually the gospel is about more than just me sorting myself out or me helping you sort yourself out. Actually, there is a completely different way that God has planned the world to look And that actually, as the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as the kingdom is extended, what that process is, is the world looking more and more and more like God always intended it to. It's not okay for us to have a mentality of, we're just trying to get out of here alive. We're just trying to um, do the best that we can and try and take as many people with us. Now, I think what it means for us to be about extending the kingdom is being about making the world look more like God always intended, making it look more like heaven. 
And so I think that's important as we, um, as we journey through Mark and, and just generally, but particularly in this gospel, because what the writer is wanting us to do is view everything back through that lens. So how is this bit, how is this story, how is this bit of teaching helping me to understand what it looks like for me to, um, to just like Jesus did, model the kingdom and show people that there is a different way. There is an alternative reality to what we see in front of us, and it's the kingdom of heaven. So I just want you to hold on to that. Um, so going to Mark 14, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus being anointed by the woman of Bethany. Now, um, it's a famous story, which is great, um, but I also believe it's a critical story. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, firstly, the emphasis that Jesus himself puts on the story, which we'll look at in a minute. Um, but secondly, Mark, um, the writer, he, um, when, he's, when he's physically describing this story, he uses um, a particular literary technique, um, and it's called a chiasm. Um, and these come in loads of different forms, but in its simplest form, a chiasm is like a sandwich. So you've got um, two bits of bread either side of a filling. Um, the two bits of bread are kind of the, um, the sort of staple, and they, they look similar to each other. And then, but it's the filling bit in the middle that's the different bit. And that's the bit that the writer wants to draw our attention to, because that's the bit we care about. Um, so we see it in Mark 14. The first two verses, they're all about um, the chief priests starting to plot against Jesus. Um, then we get the story of Bethany. And then it jumps straight back in verse 10 and, starts, and it says, and then Judas Iscariot went off and um, put in motion the betrayal. Um, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't Mark getting distracted, being like, oh, I'm writing about one thing. Oh, quick over here and then back over there. It was deliberate because he wanted us to see and highlight the filling in the sandwich. So um, without further ado, let's have a look inside the lunchbox and see what Mark has packed for us today. So Jesus anointed at Bethany, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be proclaimed in memory of her. That is an outrageous statement. And, and it's remarkable that actually Jesus' response um, to this woman's actions is um, more than anything else he experienced in his three years on earth or even before that. He says, this is the thing that when the gospel is preached, when the good news about me is told around the world, this is a thing that will be remembered throughout time. It's crazy. It's, it's amazing. And um, it seems like there's obviously a reason why Jesus has chosen this thing. Um, so obviously what he's talking about is the woman's um, worship of him. And it's this beautiful, symbolic, heartfelt, worshipful act. Um, but it's also a massive waste a massive waste. And oh my gosh, how much do we hate waste, right? 
We hate waste. You know, wasted time, wasted opportunities, wasted talent, wasted resources. It just, it just grates in a certain way. And I think it's because um, it leaves us with the question of what could have been? Oh, if only that hadn't happened, what could have been? You know, um, it happens all over the place. But you think about when you hear stories of supermarkets who throw away perfectly good food. We just think, oh, what could have been with that? Or, um, you know, you think about, you hear stories of bureaucracy wasting millions of pounds or um, just stuff that, oh, that could have been used so much better. And, and for me, I think of Stephen Gerrard slipping over and watching the title disappear with him. And I'm just like, oh, what could have been? It's all right, this year, this is the year. It's coming back. But um, in all seriousness, waste is offensive to us. It is really offensive. Um, even things like the thought of a wasted youth it can haunt us and it can lead us to make choices and do things that we otherwise wouldn't have done. I think as well, waste can often make us feel like we're being cheated, that someone else or something else is, is winning at our expense, that, um, that in this great you know, interaction of life, in, the, in the, the deal of life, we're coming out on the losing side and, and that, can't, that hates us, that offends us, doesn't it? Because we, we want to make sure we're on top. Um, it, show, again, shows up in so many ways and, and lots of probably really good ways in some respects, like when you look around shopping for the best electricity deal because you don't want to waste money on it. But um, maybe it also looks like, you know, someone gives you an invitation and you don't want to respond to it because well, what if something better comes along and I don't want to waste my Saturday night doing the kind of C grade thing when maybe there's going to be an A grade. Um, anyone made a Facebook event recently and tried to get RSVPs? Yeah. Um, very little response. Um, but there's this just sense of, I don't want to miss out. Um, for me, there's a few kind of really silly ways that um, this shows up. Like, firstly, when I get a evening at home, when there's um, nothing else to do and I'm in on my own, um, I sort of feel this pressure to not waste it. So if I'm going to watch something, I want to make sure it's an amazing movie. Like, I don't want to spend two hours watching um, restoration, restoration, restoration or something. I want to watch some artistic, profound, moving thing. And, um, or if I'm going to read a book, I want to make sure that it's amazingly insightful and I'm going to feel like I don't want to waste that opportunity. And, or um, another one that takes way too much of my headspace is, um, is fantasy football. Have you got any fantasy football players in the house? Nope. Okay. Uh, well, it's great. You should totally do it. Um, <laughs> no, generally, it's, I spend so much time looking at different players and thinking about which ones are going to be good for me, which ones I can let go. Um, and because I don't want to be caught on the wrong side of the ledger. I don't want to have picked up a player that isn't worth it. And I don't want to have let one go that would actually be great. Um, but there's this thing, like, in every interaction, in every activity, um, in every process, even, even, like, all the good holy ones, we want to make sure that what we did was worth it, that we came out on the right side of the deal, that we didn't waste our time, that we didn't waste opportunities. We want to make sure we're on the right side of things. And back to the story. And so the woman, we, uh, we find her, she has taken this alabaster jar and this nard, this ointment, and the Bible tells us it was worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's work, a day's wages. So 300, and that's pretty much a year's wages. So whatever that looks like for you, um, imagine that amount of money boiled down into, I don't know how big it was, um, but this jar full of ointment. And she takes it and she, and she smashes it and she pours it out on Jesus. And in the eyes of the people there, 
that was a waste for a lot of them anyway. Like, what are this massive waste? And how would you have reacted when you were there? Would you have, would you have like Jesus been like, oh, wow, this is, this is the thing they're going to be talking about in 2,000 years. What an amazing thing. Or would maybe have you been more like um, the people who are in that room who are like, what are you doing? Surely, surely there must have been a better use for this resource. Surely you could have sold it and given the money to the poor. You, maybe just use half of it and sell the other half and give that money to the poor. Like surely there must have been a better, more um, viable way of using this resource. And the, the disciples who were there, the, um, the people who were there, they weren't offended by the woman's worship. They weren't offended by the fact that she wanted to do a nice thing for Jesus, a, a hugely symbolic thing. They weren't offended by that. They were offended by the waste. They were offended by what could have been. They were offended by what it cost her. But Jesus, he doesn't describe it as waste. He describes it as something else. He, he describes it in a way that he doesn't describe anything else throughout the rest of the Gospels. He says it's beautiful. He calls this waste beautiful. Jesus looked past the false piety that was in the room. You know, he even called it out. He's like, if you're so bothered about the poor, you can do something about it tomorrow. Like, don't worry about that. He looked, he looked into the situation and he saw right at the heart of the matter. He saw what was going on. He saw what kind of person the woman was, and he saw what kind of offering this was. It was a complete, full offering. He saw the extravagance of the woman, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. It's the same kind of extravagance, the same kind of beauty that saw a man in his prime choose to hang on a cross, waste his blood, waste the best years of his life, waste his reputation, waste his political influence, and waste it all for the advancements and the beauty of something bigger, for the beauty of the kingdom. It's the same kind of extravagance, the same kind of beauty. So then what about us? You know, every time Jesus tells a story, there's an invitation for us to place ourselves inside that story and allow it to ask some questions about us. Sometimes it's which character are we? Sometimes it's our response. But there's always the opportunity to put yourself in it and think, what is God saying to me right here, right now? And I would sum it up as this. You know, if our time here on earth is an alabaster flask, what would it look like to smash it into pieces and pour it out in extravagant worship on Jesus? If your time here on earth is like an alabaster flask, what would it look like to smash it into pieces and pour it out in worship on Jesus? What would that look like for you? How could you take your time, your energy, your, your resources, your very humanity, everything that makes you you, and spend it for the glory of the kingdom of God? Even just in this space now, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let him draw things to mind. Let him put things on your heart. Maybe there's areas you've been holding back. Maybe there's areas that you've explained stuff away as, as, as sensible and worthwhile or actually God's calling you to something different. Just allow him to speak to you. Maybe it is 
something as obvious as worship. Actually, the, the glory and the honor that you bring to Jesus, whether it's in settings like this or, or throughout the week in your normal life, maybe it's that. Maybe actually God's saying, what would it look like for you to extravagantly worship me just like this woman did? And if that's you, I say, don't be like the disciples who tried to explain away why she should do something different. But just go for it. Take your opportunity and bless Jesus, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's something around just faith and Christianity generally. Perhaps you've been floating around the church, maybe dipping your toe in the water a little bit, coming along, kind of checking things out, but just holding yourself back and Maybe actually now is the time just to dive in head first. Maybe you grew up in the church. Perhaps you just, you've grown up around a family faith. But actually now is the time for you to take hold of things and be like, you know what? I'm going to go for this. All or nothing, ride or die. I'm going after Jesus, everything. Maybe there's stuff God's been speaking to you about. Maybe there's um, dreams and visions. Maybe there's... Um, Maybe there's causes he's put on your heart. Maybe there's projects. Maybe there's um, things that he's been whispering to you that he's asking you to step into. And you just know that it's going to take absolutely everything. You know that you can't do it half-hearted. And I'd say to that, if you could stand in front of the woman who broke the jar and ask her if she regretted it, what do you think she'd say? I think she'd say, I'd do it again a thousand times over. Maybe actually it's something a little more um, nuanced or a little more immediate. Um, something like the very thought of you sitting down still for 30 minutes and not doing anything feels like a cardinal sin. Feels like the most extravagant way you could spend your time. Um, maybe actually your worship is to rest. Knowing that actually there's still going to be stuff for you to do afterwards, whether you do that thing now or not. There's always going to be things for you to do. But actually, maybe your extravagant worship is to stand still in a spinning world and be like, no, there's something that's more valuable than everything else that's buzzing around right now. I could go on, but what I'm trying to say, I think, is summed up um, by this guy called Johannes Hartel, who I'd recommend you checking him out. But um, when he's talking about this passage in Mark 14, he, um, he says, we need to stop asking questions that say, was it really necessary and we need to start asking questions. Was it beautiful? Was it beautiful? Uh, there's a book I read a few years ago called The Grapes of Wrath, uh, or Wrath, depending where you're from. I say Wrath. Uh, it's by a guy called John Steinbeck. And um, he talks about a family in Oklahoma who have been forced off their land. They're a farming family, and they're forced off their land because um, basically they're not producing enough crops. And so the banks repossess the land. They send in um, people with tractors and machinery and, and higher tech, higher performance equipment um, to replace them. And the, and, and the traditional sort of farming culture starts to die away. And as, as Steinbeck's reflecting on this and the, and the difference between the people who live and work the land versus the guy who just rolls in and does a shift on it, he, he writes this passage, which I think is really interesting. But when the motor of a tractor stops, it is as dead as the ore it came from. The heat goes out of it like the living heat that leaves a corpse. Then the corrugated iron doors are closed and the tractor man drives home to town, perhaps 20 miles away. And he need not come back for weeks or months for the tractor is dead. And this is easy and efficient. 
so easy that the wonder goes out of the work and so efficient that the wonder goes out of the land and the working of it. And with the wonder, the deep understanding and the relation. And in the tractor man, there grows the contempt that comes only to a stranger who has little understanding and no relation. Now, obviously, this isn't scripture, but it, um, it spoke to me. And um, the thing that I felt like God's saying was there's a difference here between um, a way of life and a means to an end. And the difference is all about um, productivity. Actually, if productivity, what comes out, the bottom line, if that is your highest goal, then the thing that's going to get you there is, is efficiency. Like, actually, efficiency becomes king because it's all about the bottom line. Now, um, maybe this is just me, and I hope it is, but I, I read this, and I felt like God challenged me around my worship. Like, actually, how often can our worship be similar to that guy who, rather than this, these family that live and breathe and work the land, actually um, lives in a different place, rolls into town a couple of times a week, does a shift for a couple of hours, does what he needs to do, gets what he needs, disappears back and carries on with his normal life. Sometimes worship, I think we get to that place. We think, I'll just roll up at church, I'll go to city group, I'll do my thing, tick my box, and I'll get what I need to do, and I'll, I'll do what I'm, Jesus asked me to do, tick the box, done, back to the rest of my life. And it's easy and it's efficient. And you know what? It kind of works for a bit. Just like the, the new farming techniques really worked for a bit until eventually the land was dead. They rinsed it so hard they couldn't do it anymore. And similarly, if we get into that space where we just come from a different place and, and rock up in worship and we just keep doing that, we're actually, the, the contempt that Steinbeck talks about with the tractor man, we start to get that contempt. We start to be like, oh, I don't like this song. Oh, I like the songs they did a couple of years ago. Uh, that kind of attitude starts to creep in. Whereas actually, if we have this way of life, like that actually when I come on a Sunday, it's just an overflow of every other hour from the rest of the week. That's when there's a connection, there's an understanding, there's a relation. And that sort of deadness and contemptness that Steinbeck was, was itching at, that's not there anymore. And I think coming back to Mark 14, I, I think that's a big question because um, how much more is our society today driven by productivity, driven by efficiency, driven, driven by outcome, what, um, what we can get, what we can perform, what we can do, all those kind of things. How much more is our society like that today? And what I think this story that Jesus tells us to remember does is it cuts right through it. And it gets us to question, are we the kind of people that are more driven by efficiency or extravagance? Are we more driven by efficiency or extravagance? I've put verses up on the slide, and you know what? I wish I hadn't done, because they're not, um, it's not a dichotomy. Um, just because you're extravagant, it doesn't mean you can't be efficient. But I think what, what I feel like God's saying to us this morning is that we need to be a people who are more characterized by extravagance than we are by efficiency, because that's what I see in this passage. I see a woman who is extravagant. And that's what I see in the life of Jesus. I see a man who was in heaven enjoying the fullness of relationship in the Trinity. Philippians 2 tells us that he did not seek that as something to use for his own good, but he laid it down, came to earth, was born in a stable, lived as a man, endured everything that every man goes through, was humbled on a cross for the sin of the entire world, 
so that ultimately he could be raised again. That was extravagant. That was beautiful. That was inefficient, really. Surely God could have done that a different way. But that's, that's who he is. That's what he's like. I see it in, in parables. You know, when we read about um, the rich farmer who, who hoards his grain but then loses light over, life overnight, and, and Jesus says, what's the point? Or in the, um, the merchant who sells everything to buy the pearl of great price because he recognizes its value. Look back in the Old Testament and you see it in the, in the great structures of the temples that took years and years and years to build and every little centimeter was, was directed by the Lord and it was the most lavish, extravagant expression of his presence on earth. Or you look into Revelation and you see a holy city paved with gold, pearls for gates. I look at all these things and I see a king and his kingdom that is more characterized by extravagance than it is by efficiency. And I think as people who profess to be his disciples, profess to follow in his footsteps, that needs to be the same for us. And why wouldn't it be when we're co-heirs to an everlasting kingdom and we're best mates with a God who is without limit or boundary? Now, um, it is an offensive question, and it's one I need to bring a caveat to, because I'm not trying to say that efficiency is bad or even that extravagance is always good. Um, what I'm trying to say is that I'm not trying to like glorify sinful excess or I'm not trying to glorify waste. I just think there's sometimes a deficiency in that the world around us values efficiency, whereas it, when we look at extravagance, we either ogle at it in the lives of the elite or we scorn it as a missed opportunity and, and a distraction from the goal. But I think there's something about extravagance that is to mark us as believers of Jesus. Just like the extravagance of the worship, um, the worship of the woman in that story was something that Jesus told us we needed to hold on to. And I think it's because, coming back to what I said at the start, it's about the kingdom. It's about actually, Jesus came to usher in a completely new world order. Yes, that means different for us individually, but it means actually he's reordering the world to make it look more like he always intended. And he chooses us to be part of it. And one of the ways that we do that is by standing in contrast to the rest of the world. You know, Christianity is not a social norm. It's a radical alternative. It's not a social norm. It's a radical alternative. And just like here in Mark 14, we have the chiasm and we have this story peeking out. We have, um, I read a commentary that describes it as like a diamond sitting on a black cloth. It's standing out. It's, it's the Nutella in the sandwich. The same way that Jesus calls us to be salt and light, we're here to represent a different king, a different kingdom. You know, when I read the story of Jesus walking into the locked door of the disciples, I don't imagine an ethereal ghost that just kind of drifted through the walls. I imagine someone who is more real, more real than the wood, because there is a kingdom that is more real than the flesh and blood that we see before us. And actually, we're called to be part of extending that. And that looks like so many different things, so many different things. But one of the ways that I think it looks like is extravagance. Whether that is selling up everything, moving to the mission field, or whether that's putting a few extra pounds in when you go for curry because it's embarrassing when it's short. It, look, it looks like so many different things. But I think it's about more than us just like doing Christianity well. Actually, it's prophetic, it's subversive. 
We're, what we're doing is reordering the world around us and showing that there is a different way. So that's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the charge that extravagance is a kingdom thing. And it is because Jesus is so worth it. He is so worth it. You come back to Mark 1 verse 1. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the documentary about Jesus. That's the same for your life. Your life is the documentary about Jesus and you as his follower. And he is worth it all. He's worth absolutely everything. You know that famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Not just what's easy, not just what's efficient, not just what I can get away with, how much do you need, God, but everything, because he's so worth it. And when we do that, when we pour out that extravagant worship on Jesus, it is like the fragrance of that nard that drifts down centuries later and we're still smelling it. That's why I think extravagance is so key.